Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. Thanks to you guys once again for joining us here. We're going to do some more of what we do here on the College Football Survivor Show with Doug Lamarice and Shahan Jaharaja. We're going to possibly welcome two more contenders to our playoff mix, which at the moment stands at Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Baylor, Texas A&M, Michigan, and North Carolina State. The teams on the block today, USC and Utah, as we look to the Pac-12 slash future Big Ten. And we're also going to rank all the contenders by their Receivers, pass catchers. Little tight end talk in there, too, because otherwise, when are we going to talk about Brock Bowers? And we got to talk about Brock Bowers. So we'll rank everybody, but we'll start off with, do these teams deserve to be in the mix, Shahan? We ask our text voters. No, it's tweet voters at CFB Survivor Show. You can follow us on Twitter. We put out, hey, do you think this team deserves to be in our conversation? It's not can they win the national title. It's do they belong in a playoff conversation before the season starts? With Shahan, I will say, man, the voters are tough. Man, the voters are tough. If we just listened to them, we'd be talking about five, six teams. They don't want to let anybody in. Unlike me, they have very high standards. <laughs> no, I get it, right? And I think the other part of this, too, is that especially when a poll kind of goes out to Twitter, I think a lot of the time, right, it, the standard is, well, could they beat Alabama? Could they beat Ohio State? And the answer is, I don't care. That's not the point. You just have to be one of the four. You just have to be Cincinnati. You just have to be Michigan State. You just have to be whatever fourth team that there is. So I I think that certainly it's more fair to open up the discussion to more teams than uh, than probably the Twitter voters sometimes want to do. But uh, but I think I think it's good also to have a moderating force when it comes to uh, w- when it comes to our voting structure. So the, the, the deal is Shahan gets a vote. I get a vote. Everybody on Twitter gets a vote. You got to get two or three yeses to get in. I will say USC and Utah, are the seventh and eighth, eighth teams that we have asked the Twitterati about. Two of the eight have gotten the yes from from the Twitter people which again, two of the eight so far. So if we just went by them, we started off with Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama, said they're sure things. We'd only have six if we were going by them. But you and I are a little more forgiving. Real quick before we start in on USC and Utah, though, news coming out Wednesday morning as we record this that Sam Hartman, the Wake Forest quarterback, is is out indefinitely with uh, a medical issue non-related to football. 
And obviously, the main point is best of luck, best thoughts with Sam Hartman and getting back to full health. It made me think, Shahan, we've talked so much about the great quarterbacks in the ACC. We talked about on our Apple podcast show that you guys can get for four episodes a month for $2.99 for the whole month. You get all these bonus episodes. We do one a week. We were talking about the best teams in each state, That uh, a map you did at CBSSports.com, and you had Wake Forest as the best football team in North Carolina right now, which is not nothing. If we did a list of the good college football teams and the players that are most important to them. Could Sam Hartman make an argument for number one, that he is as important to Wake Forest as any single player is to any team that might win 10 games this year? I wouldn't have him number one, but he's up there, right? I mean, the combination between Sam Hartman and A.T. Perry at receiver is insane. It's such a huge part of what they do. And even more than that, it's, you, you know, I mean, Wake Forest runs kind of a unique offense. They they run sort of that slow mesh type stuff. And having a quarterback with experience in that system I think it's huge, right? Like somebody who knows how to run it. I don't want to compare it all the way to an option team, but it's almost like an option. So somebody being able to manage the option, I think is huge for that team. And Sam Hartman's played a lot of games for Wake Forest. So, so I think easily when you look at the way that that offense works, it's absolutely terrible. Obviously, we, we hope the best for Sam Hartman. Hopefully it's a minor issue and he'll be back to, to doing what he loves soon enough. Uh, but I mean, you know, from a pure football perspective, this is brutal. I mean, I, I think that it drastically changes the way that you have to think about Wake Forest football. And it changes how you think about the ACC, because we have two teams in Clemson and NC State that we're talking about as playoff contenders. And Wake Forest with Sam Hartman, Wake Forest is capable on any Saturday of beating anybody in that conference. So number one thing, best wishes to Sam Hartman. Hope uh Hope he's back as soon as possible and and at full health. So um, that's a great college football player that everybody's thinking about. All right, let's dive in. Let's start with Utah. The Utes, great last year, really good this year. I'm going to take the easy way out, and I'm going to make the presentation for why Utah belongs in our college football playoff discussion. 17 starters back. Nine of them made some version of an all-conference team in the Pac-12 last year. That starts with quarterback Cam Rising, running back Tavion Thomas, two of their top three receivers, two of their top three tight ends. They lost maybe the best defensive player in Utah history in Devin Lloyd, but they're still really good on defense. This is a borderline sure thing team. It is a remarkable credit to Kyle Whittingham and what he has built over the long term at Utah. And this is just a great example of a real solid, sturdy. This this program's a rock. Right. There are no questions about Utah as a program, but they're also peaking. This is this is a peak of a very good program, and we've got to talk about them. So they've got to be in. So good luck with your no discussion. <laughs> um, OK, so Utah, of course, last year has one of the best teams in the country uh, after they switched to Cam Rising. Uh But they did lose, like you mentioned, maybe the best defensive player in school history and linebacker Devin Lloyd. He was a huge contributor on their defense. Uh, He's a huge part of their run stop. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, they started one and two last year and really took off after switching to quarterback Cameron Rising. But how much of that was 
the quality of camera rising and how much of that was teams not necessarily being prepared for the different kind of look that he brought to the table versus what they prepared for. It's hard to say now uh, all that to say, uh, no, I don't really believe this argument. I, I, I also think that Utah should pretty easily be in the fields. Yeah, it's, um, there's a real, there's a real depth of talent there. And this is, listen again, the transfer portal is good for players. The transfer players, portal is good for players you get up you can go seek out opportunities right but what when you see some that really really hit right that cam rising goes to what was the oklahoma commit flips to texas goes to texas kind of just is not the right deal and then goes to utah fights for the job doesn't get it they make the switch early last year and it's like yep that is right guy right place this is a this is a match and it makes me think you know again you're always on the lookout for for places where that can be true. Like Casey Thompson, former Texas quarterback, transfers to Nebraska. Nebraska's looking at Cam Rising and say, holy moly, could that happen here? Could could Nebraska be this year's Utah because they get a transfer Texas quarterback who maybe wasn't quite the right guy at Texas? Because frankly, Texas is looking for Quinn Ewers, but he is the right guy at a place like Utah or, or Nebraska. So when it works, right, Caleb Williams, we're going to talk about USC. It's a different situation, but man, Caleb Williams at USC might be exactly right. Like you, when when the transfers are are, are square peg, square hole, awesome. So you you see that you see a real running back in Thomas. You see that they're not going to throw a ton of receivers, but they have like NFL quality tight ends across the board. They they just everything about them is real. You know, like there's just not a lot. This, there's not a lot to poke holes in. Maybe at top end, top end, top end, top end talent versus Bama, Georgia, Ohio State. Like maybe, but also they played right with Ohio State. I thought that mattered too. Listen, Ohio State didn't play Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave in the bowl game. Um, Ohio, Utah was also down like a bunch of corners and was playing like a, a running back at their second corner spot for part of that game. And Ohio State took advantage of it. But Utah went toe-to-toe with an Ohio State team that a lot of people thought were going to make the playoff. They were not scared at all. And just, like, being willing to do that, standing in, taking every blow, fighting back is like, yo, that is even more real Utah stuff. So nobody doesn't think Utah belongs here. But it's, again, when we were talking about in the Apple Podcast show, Shahan, sort of like, you look at your map. And it's like, who's the best team in Texas? Who's the best team in Florida? Who's the best team in Oklahoma? And it, it can be some surprising things. Also, the idea that Utah is a rock-solid college football team in this era is another one of those things that, again, as much as we think the sport is dominated by a couple of top-tier things, this is great. Utah is a, Utah's a stud. Awesome. How did we get here? I don't know. I guess you put Kyle Whittingham somewhere for 20 years and he makes it work. But I love it, right? Who doesn't love this? Yeah. No, no, no question about it. And so I will, again, these are like the most minor nitpicky of holes, but I think that it's worth, uh, I think it's worth having the conversation about. You mentioned it. Uh, they have these great tight ends who are a huge part of their passing game. Brant Cuthy and Dalton Kincaid. So both had over 500 yards receiving last year, but they lost their only 500 yard wide receiver in Britton Covey who was also a dynamic return guy for them. Uh, They're going to have to, I think, replace him in some way. And there's not an obvious guy. Again, they didn't have another receiver who had more than 400 yards or more than 26 catches. So they, they kind of are one of those teams that kind of junks things together. 
I'm going to be curious to see whether they hit that next level at receiver and can be a little bit more dynamic. And the other thing that I'll mention, too, is the schedule. They play at Florida versus San Diego State in non-conference. That's that's pretty dang tough. I mean, to play both those two. San Diego State, borderline the best program in Cal- yes. California. Borderline. Yes, yes. Then they go at Arizona State, at UCLA, at Washington State, at Oregon. So it's not going to be easy. If Utah makes the playoff, they're absolutely going to have earned their spot there. But all that said, I mean, Utah's the team. Utah is clearly the team that has the best chance out of the Pac-12 and is clearly, you know, for me, uh, the the coaches poll came out on uh, earlier this week, I think on Monday. And Utah was number eight. And honestly, my first thought was, that's kind of disrespectful. I, mm. I kind of felt like they should be closer to four or five. That's how good I think that this program is right now. Again, they're going to be tested in a lot of different ways. But when you look at the list, I mean, Utah is right up there for me. Twitter people agree. This is one of the teams that Twitter people like. 56.6% yes on Twitter. Should Utah be added to our discussion? 43.4% no. So that's three yes votes, which is hard to get on this show. So congratulations to Utah. They will join the discussion. You teased a little bit, Shahan. We're going to talk, we're going to rank all the contenders based on their pass catchers, receivers and tight ends a little bit later in the show. So I don't know that Utah's going to be super, super high on that list, but the tight ends certainly are interesting, but they're at least going to be in the discussion. Will USC be in the discussion? We'll do that next on the college football survivor show. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Doug and Shahan back again, CFB Survivor Show on Twitter. Love to have you there because then you can, you know, vote. And we'd love to have you vote. We'll also like, yeah, we could do little audio clips of the show. And sometimes if Shahan has like a new purple suit and he takes a picture of himself looking like a male model, then I retweet it. And I say, yes, you're handsome. And I retweet it to the whole world on the CFB Survivor Show account. So, you know. I also, there is a picture currently on Twitter, it's not on the CFB Survivor Show account, of me in a Mickey Mouse onesie that you can go find. Again, that's just one of the differences between me and Shahan. Our onesie collection. Mine is more extensive. Um, USC. I will take... I don't, you don't have to comment on my onesie collection. I, 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 I talked about furry handcuffs on the last show. You were on tilt. Like, why am I on the show with this guy? I won't make you comment on that. Um... I'll take the no on USC on this. I, I made you do the hard, the hard one last time. I'll do the more difficult one this time because I think we know what you think of USC. Six of their expected starters on offense are transfers and three of their expected starters on defense are transfers. And do you think that means it won't come together all the way? We've also talked a lot. We had Josh Newman 
from the Salt Lake Tribune on our Pac-12 preview show. We are all targeting that midseason matchup, USC at Utah. And we all think that might be a rematch in a, in a Pac-12 championship game where they no longer have divisions and it's just going to be the two best teams. Um, the schedule, I think, is easy enough for them to get their feet under them. But Shahan, I think, I think that's the thing. Like, not that it's not going to work long term, but are we sure it's going to work right now? Do we maybe want to see it a little bit before we assume it? Basically, everybody who's going to have the ball in their hands is new. Was playing somewhere else last year, so there. <coughs> excuse me. There are some people who I think want to pull the reins back on USC just a little bit. And I do think any first-year coach with a this much roster turnover, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, let's slow play this and not put them in and, until we see it. Is that a convincing no? Or are, you swayed, are you swayed by my no? Not really? No? What's your yes? Oh, All we right. have good players and a good coach. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, John. So I think that going into this, the obvious argument is that they went 4-8 and eight last year. They have a new coaching staff. They're going to rely on a whole bunch of new players. But I think for me, it's also very obvious to note that this is not a 4-8 and eight quality team. This was a team that was expected to compete for the Pac-12 last year that played in the Pac-12 championship game the year before that and just kind of fell apart when their coach was fired after week two which is something that happens to programs when their coaches are fired that early. So when I look at the quality of talent on the roster as it existed heading into this year, I think it's a little underrated to start out. And then you look at the players that they brought in. They brought in one of the best quarterbacks in college football and Caleb Williams. They brought in the best receiver, you know, at least by award in, uh, in Jordan Addison. They brought in some really good players at running back, including Travis Dye, who is really the guy at Oregon last year. And then on the defensive side of the ball, what they did more than anything else is they brought in a wealth of talents. They they brought in more than 10 transfers on the defensive side of the ball, several of whom uh, could contribute very early on. And I think what that gave them more than anything, because I think that a lot of their top line defenders were fine, but they have a depth of talent now that they never had under Clay Helton. So when you look at that and you mix it with the schedule, I I don't think that they're really going to have that much of a chance to lose before week six. I think it gives them time to be able to find their sea legs underneath them. I think it gives them a chance to be really good because everything is going to be leading up to that game on October 15th against Utah. If if they can win that game, they're going to have a chance to probably get Utah again in the Pac-12 championship game. They're going to get Notre Dame later in the year. They can withstand a loss, go 12-1, and one, and make the college football playoff. And look, here, here's the thing. I don't think it's that un, uh, unreasonable to think that things might come together enough that they could do it, especially in a Pac-12 that I don't think is going to challenge them all that much. Do we have a handle on the transfer portal yet? Exactly, and ha- what it means no. for roster building and team shaping. I think that we have a handle on, hey, players should have freedom of movement, right? Like we sort of handle on, but I don't know that we have a handle on what it means for the football, especially when it's wholesale. I do think Michigan State gave us a view of it last year, right? They were a New Year's Six team after they were not very good, and they were not good at all in Mel Tucker's first year. They yeah. bring in a bunch of transfers, including Kenneth Walker the third, who's a, who's a game changer, and boom. They're not perfect, but they're a New Year's Six team. They beat Michigan, right? They they had a 
really, really good year. They made a huge leap. They made like a six or seven win leap in a year by completely reshaping their roster. And so even when we look at things like blue chip ratio and you we always go back to recruiting rankings and now places are, are doing, you know, transfer portal rankings as well. But I still, if you've been around college football for a long time, whether covering it or just as a fan, I still think you think recruiting first and then the transfer portal is supplemental. So when you have a team where the transfer portal is primary, the six most important starters on offense are all transfer guys. The quarterback, the running back, the three receivers, and left tackle are the transfer guys. Like this, the it's the guys who are going to do stuff. Also, but if you're going to have transfer guys, I'd rather have trans. I'd rather have receivers who are transfer guys, not like a whole new offensive line who didn't meet each other until, you know, June, and now they're going to all play next to each other. Right? That would be you need cohesion there. Transfer receiver, it's like run the route, beat the guy when the ball's in the air, make a play. Right? So I do think I think that can work right away. I think anybody who's reluctant, if you're reluctant on USC, as I could have sort of spelled out, I'm not trying to do a straw man here, Shahan. I think there we realize there are people out there, right? Is it just that you can't get there? You just have automatic doubts about lots of transfers and that's ingrained in you? Or are you just, are you looking at the losing record from last year? If you're held back legitimately, what is really holding you back? Is there, is there a depth of talent argument? You know, as they try to rebuild this, is there a cohesion argument? What's the best argument for why it might take a year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we haven't really seen a team wholesale rebuild into something different through the transfer portal in one year with a new coaching staff, right? I, I mean, Mel Tucker brought in some key guys last year who really changed the game a little bit, but they were kind of tweaking around the edges in some ways too, right? I mean, obviously you bring in a couple of stars, but you didn't have to fully rely on guys who didn't play for the team last year when you were talking about Michigan State. With USC, the core of the team is different. Now, for me, I, I look at it and I say, well, the core of the team is different, but one, a lot of them have played for Lincoln Riley before. A lot of the most important people have played for Lincoln Riley before. And two, they're like you said, they're at positions that I think uh, could be you know could be easy to slide into like receiver. The question for me, I think, <clears throat> is going to be, you know, because because yeah, I don't think that we have a good handle on sort of the transfer portal and and how quick to expect results, especially with a new coaching staff and a new philosophy and all these sort of things. I think that for me, what I look at, what I'm looking at, really anything when I when I look at replacing any position group is not what's the quality of this individual player, right? Like bringing in Jordan Addison is cool, but like how much depth of talent are you creating at that position, mm. right? I, I don't want to see, oh, I brought in a great cornerback transfer. It's going to work. It's over. I want to see, hey, there are like three guys who I think could take this position, who I feel like okay about, and who are playable football players, right? And then you think, okay, well, if you've got three who are pretty good and, and you feel like are playable, one of them probably is going to hit. It's just probably going to hit. It gives you three bites at the apple. And... When I look on the defensive side of the ball, I, uh, credit, by the way, to USCfootball.com's Chris Trevino, who, who did a great breakdown of, of the defensive side of the ball. Going through things, I'm also shocked with the amount of really good transfers who might not play because mm, they yep. like what they have there, right? And, and so I, I look at Nick Figueroa, right, right, on the at defensive end. I think that he's somebody who's been a contributor and a veteran in this program and, and from 
reports, it, it seems like he's going to hold off players for a starting job. Corey Foreman, who is the number one recruit in the country, is a backup right now on the defensive line. You know, so like, I just like the amount of talent that they have. I like the fact that when I look at their backups, these are guys who I also think have a chance to play for them. Uh, again, when you bring in more than 10 transfers, the point is not here's 10 transfers. Those 10 guys need to start. It's here's 10 transfers. If two or three of those guys can start on the defensive side of the ball, I think that that gives you a good chance to be good. And, and again, when you look at offense, it's going to be completely different. Uh, I, I think that when you look at what Lincoln Riley does, because because I also will throw into this, I mean, the coaching gap between yeah. <laughs> Clay Helton and Lincoln Riley, especially on offense, is immense. Just incredible, right? Like, these are two of the most different offensive coaches that you can have as offensive coaches. Now, Graham Harrell, I think, is a pretty good coordinator, but he's not Lincoln Riley, right? Lincoln Riley is something completely different when it comes to offensive coaching. So I just think that, you know, you look at you look at the talent that's coming back. You look at specifically the players who are coming back, how they might fit within a system. You look at the backups and how many of them you think can contribute. Uh, you know, for me on the offensive line, I, I know there's a lot of questions there from people. I like a lot of the players that they have coming in. I, I think that they brought in uh, Bobby Haskins from Virginia, who was somebody who contributed a lot for them last year at left tackle. Andrew Voorhees is an All-America contender at guard. Like they have talent there. It's not some nothing burger that they're just trying to slap things together. I, I think that, again, people watched USC kind of crumble last year and, and assume, oh, well, that's what this team was. They were nobodies. And God forbid me be the one to say, no, actually, they have a lot of good players because they're USC, but they're USC. They have a lot of good players. I do think there remains something inherent in American sports fans that we like the teams that build from the bottom up a little bit more. You know, you look at the NBA, and I think people like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and the way the Celtics build that. No, screw the Celtics, man, but, but that's independent. You do that. love the NBA. <laughs> I do love the NBA. You love it. You know, people look at Steph Curry and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson and what yes. they build at Golden State, and they like that. And then you look at the Nets and Kevin Durant and James Harden and Kyrie Irving and how that's kind of imploded before it really did anything trying to build through acquiring outside superstars. And I think some people look at that and say, ha ha, see. And I do think there's a little bit of that here, that USC kind of right now is the Nets. And when people want the Warriors and Utah is the Warriors. So yeah. I, it, it will be a great contrast. Man, who is woo, mama? We did early in the, I mean, in the offseason, we did like the best games. That USC-Utah yeah. game, holy moly, set your clocks, man. That's yeah. going to be awesome, but it really is almost a fundamental. It's sort of like the way college football used to be with the way college football is going to be now. But I think I think a lot of people still lean used to be. I, I mean, it's like they are also just fundamentally like if you're a Pac-12 fan right now, then you just must hate USC right now because they come in after years of mediocrity are like, all right, we got the great coach now. We got all the good players now. Like we're back you know, it, it, we're going to ignore all of y'all again. Like you must just be in, if you're an Oregon state fan and you've been doing so many things right for so long and then Lincoln Riley just gets to walk in and all of a sudden USC's on e the cover of everything right now, you must hate that. And so, no, and, and for example, I think that USC yeah. is absolutely one of the villains in college football this year, by the way, also they're leaving the PAC 12 and destabilizing it throughout this whole thing. So like, I, I think that they're absolutely one of the villains in college football, but 
I mean, again, may- maybe I also uh, maybe one of the issues, too, is that I've watched Lincoln Riley too closely the past couple of years being down in Texas. And I know that he can destroy anything in his path, but he is taking over a new program for the first time ever. So it, it will be interesting. Um, I, I totally get the, the counter argument, right, that this is just going to take some time. You can't just plug every hole with transfers that uh, that you can't expect guys who have never even trained together to suddenly be good on the football field on Saturdays. It could take some time like this could be a team that maybe by November is good and just September and October is not very good because they're still trying to figure things out. Again, I, I have a little more trust in, in that staff than probably those people do. But at the same time, I mean, it's a it's a whole new situation. It's interesting that they've destabilized the Pac-12 twice because their inability to replace Pete Carroll and retain that threshold of excellence is the thing that destabilized the Pac-12 to begin with because the Pac-12 vanished from the playoff scene because the team that's supposed to be the alpha dog of the conference couldn't get its stuff together for a decade plus. And then as soon as they make the, the program changing higher, then they announce they're leaving. So it's like the reason that nobody wants us it's because you stunk and now you're going to be good and now you're leaving. It's it's it. I Yes, it, they are potentially a really good villain. I will also say and people who listen to me on, on my Ohio State podcast know this very well. When Ryan Day arrived in 2019 at Ohio State and Justin Fields transferred in, I said Ohio State would go nine and three and people still call me nine and three, Doug. And they went 12 and 0 and they made the playoff because I was sort of like, <laughs> hey, doesn't happen overnight, man. First time head coach transfer quarterback who just got here in January, who played a little bit of George the year before, they're going to be good. But I don't know that it's fair to put those expectations on them right away. Expect some bumps in the road. And then their schedule was easy. Their defense was really good. Chase Young certainly helped. And then it was like, okay, well, nope, that was wrong. They just like went to the playoff and it was cool. So I still have like a little bit of a wait and see. It's not always as easy as you think it's going to be tendency. And then there are times when it's like, nope, it is as easy as you thought it was going to be. Great coach, great quarterback. That kind of does it. That that kind of probably is enough, especially if the schedule, because here's the thing, Shahan, do they belong in the playoff conversation? Okay, you look at the schedule. They have the mid-October game at Utah. They can lose that and make the playoff because they if they win the rest of their games, and they play Utah again in the Pac-12 championship game, and they avenge the loss. They just have to be good by the first weekend in December and just let the talent sort of overwhelm the rest of their schedule. That is not implausible. They don't have to be perfect to stay above water until it comes around in November, and then it might be like, oh, yeah, no, Caleb Williams, is he going to win the Heisman? Is Lincoln Riley the best coach in college football? Whoops. And here we are with USC as a playoff team. So your vote is a resounding yes? It's a resounding yes. Mine is a slightly more cautious yes. And the Twitter people are no. Twitter people are like, nope, we want to see it. USC, no, (laughs) 64.4. USC, yes, 35.6. So not even close, two to one. They don't want USC discussed, but USC is going to be discussed. So that brings us to 10 teams. That brings us to 10 teams that we will now rank based on their pass catchers, receivers, and tight ends. And we'll do it next on the College Football Survivor Show. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. 
With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right, we like doing this stuff. We like ranking. I have Baylor 10. Is that right? Yeah, Baylor 10. Everybody's gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's right. Yes. Every one of their pass catchers is gone, uh, except for Ben Sims at tight end. Uh, if it helps, I think that the talent is really good. They've just never played college football before. So, you know, let's see what happens there. This is one of those things. We, we've Baylor got in on the on the first show of adding people. And then ever since then, it's sort of been like, Baylor, they definitely deserve being in the playoff mix, but they are last in every category. And they're not. It's just. I know. We, we got they, they have, get, they, get they, to the lines. Let's get matters, to the lines. The lines, a head coach who built a culture and a program and is a great defensive mind. They switch their quarterback. They're just not going to skill position you to death. And I, you know, people like to talk about skill positions. So good luck to Baylor. You know, yeah. they'll figure it out. But again, they lost their two best receivers and their best running back. And then that's why they keep being last here. I have NC State nine. Yeah, they, they lost also a lot of their best contributors as well. They also lost that. I think we talked about it last week. They lost their their running back as well. Now, the big thing that I think you feel better about when it comes to NC State is that they do have a quarterback who I think is going to deliver the ball easily and on time. But, uh, you know, I think it's probably going to be a little bit more of a spread out type thing. They only had one 800 yard receiver last year and everybody else was under 600 for a quarterback who threw for 3,500 yards. So it's probably going to be a little bit more by committee just just naturally. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, Thayer Thomas, 51 for 596 last year. He's back. I think he was their second leading receiver. Devin Carter, 31 catches last year. He's back. They got Daryl Jones, who's a transfer from Maryland. They have some guys, but we're going to get into some groups that are potentially pretty good. There's there's two teams, especially in particular, where it's why we expanded this to include tight ends, to include pass catchers, because if you didn't include them, you would fundamentally change the discussion, and, and we would be wrong, I think, in the discussion this, I think, is the line, though, Shahan. I think Baylor and NC State, you kind of don't exactly yes. know how it's going to work. I think now, starting with eight, these top eight teams, you at least know who it's going to be, and there's some hope with the guys who are there. There is one team in particular that I had a difficult time with because I don't have a great sense of if some guys are going to play or not. But who did you have eight? I had a hard time once we got here. So, so, so did I. But I ended so up going I. with Clemson. Uh, yeah. Clemson, obviously known for producing wide receivers over the year, but I, I would argue that wide receiver was one of their biggest problems last year. Obviously, quarterback did not help, but, uh, but I think that, I, I think that really their inability to develop great receivers was a huge part of that. Uh, Joseph Ngata is a proven commodity, but, after that, it gets a little bit more tenuous. Uh, and again, part of this, it's just implicitly tied to, it's obviously just implicitly also 
tied yeah. sometimes to to what you've got a quarterback too, right? And and obviously they didn't do a good job of delivering the ball last year. They don't have a guy coming back who had more than 500 yards uh, last season. I, I expect that's going to change. I, again, I think that Ngata, he had 19 yards per catch. I, I think that if they can get slightly better quarterback play, he's going to be pushing for 1,000 yards. But I, I'm, I just don't feel amazing about the rest of the roster either. Hurt last year. Hurt. Ngata and EJ Williams, both injury issues. Those are probably the two best receivers this year. In camp, you read stuff. They're saying good things. Clemson seems enthused. You know, they're saying Ngata healthy is a true number one, but also they are a victim a bit of their own standard where you look around and say, where's Sammy Watkins and where's Mike Williams and where's DeAndre Hopkins? And this has been wide receiver you to a great extent. It really has as much as they've had great quarterbacks and great defensive lines. They have often, they have often, I cover the orange bowl in 13 Ohio state against Clemson. And Sammy Watkins was making Ohio State cornerbacks cry. That was like, what? What is this? This guy is unbelievable. And then Ohio State played him in a semifinal in six team, and Mike Williams was just reaching over Ohio State cornerbacks and like plucking the ball out of the air. And it was like, okay, well, he's impossible to stop. So that like that's what they have had. And even at their best, that is that does not T. Higgins was just there. Justin Ross right. had great potential and has unfortunately had injuries in his career. And has, in, you know, I think he's going to miss this NFL season too. They've had guys, even their peak, if these guys currently are healthy, it's not approaching that peak, which is why they're eighth. Right. Remember, Dallas Winnie's a wide receivers coach by trade. Yep. And I think that that's really come through the program in a lot of different ways. And yeah, I mean, T. Higgins kind of was, you know, he had uh, over 1,100 yards a couple years ago, but like they haven't had that level of play in a while you know that I, I mean Mike Williams was a 1300 yard receiver for them but like that's kind of what we expect we expect DeAndre Hopkins we expect Mike Williams we expect guys like that part of it is that obviously I think that they have had quarterbacks who spread the ball around because they're really really good quarterbacks but I would like to see them have a dominant receiver if I knew that they had a dominant receiver or a dominant pairing more than anything else I'd feel a whole lot different about what this team could be, but uh, obviously I don't know that. So we're we're in agreement there. Seventh, I put the team that I don't have a great handle on, and it's because they have two five-star true freshmen that I don't know how much they're going to play. So I had Texas A&M seventh here. Okay. Yeah, I, I had them a little bit higher than that. I believe I had them. I believe I had them sixth. Okay, so let's talk about them here then. Yeah. They have the number two and number three overall receivers in the class of 2022 and Evan Stewart and Chris Marshall. Do you think they'll play this year? Do you think they'll have important roles? Evan Stewart's a lock. Evan Stewart is definitely going to play, and he's also going to probably be their top wide receiver. He he completely showed out at spring camp. Like people were just off the wall talking about Evan Stewart, and and he is that kind of recruit. Like he was the number one rec uh, receiver in the country. Everybody wanted him. Yep. He was like the crown jewel from the state of Texas in a lot of ways last year. Um, so no, he's he's a lock to play. I, I think that. I think you look elsewhere, though, and and yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that anybody else is a lock. And the thing that I'll say is that Texas A&M, I've, I've talked about this before, they've recruited the position insanely well, and then those guys just never contribute, right? Like, 
Jimbo's system does not make it easy for receivers in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, Anaya Smith is somebody who's coming back. He had 500 yards last year. It sounds like his little legal dust-up is not going to be an issue for them. So, you know, I think that that's probably good news for Texas A&M. Um, you know, he, he does play a little bit of a, a of a hybrid role, but, you know, I, th- I think that, that we could list him at receiver for these purposes. Uh, Jalen Preston was somebody who contributed last year, but... You know, losing Jalen Weidermeyer at tight end, I think, is a pretty big deal yeah. for them. They, they, they don't have a clear guy who's poised to replace him. But I think Evan Stewart's going to give them as high of a ceiling as they've had in a while at receiver. But I agree. I, I just don't know exactly what to expect. And, and honestly, I don't trust this staff at this point to develop wide receivers into something special. Smith, six for 85 against Bama last year. Again, when we were talking about a couple weeks ago, it was right there had been a DUI thing, and again, that I guess was not charged, and the suspension is gone. So if you thought that was going to be an issue, not going to be an issue. I mean, Stewart's a program changer at his best, yes. right? And it's just a matter, again, yes. even, you know, there there are true freshman receivers who play, clearly. I, I don't know how many true freshman receivers are, like, the number one receivers for playoff contenders all year. Sometimes guys pop later in the year. So th- this will be fascinating to watch. But by the by December, if that's if this guy, if Stewart is who people think he is, then the idea that we had him sixth or seventh, they might be third. You know, the, the Texas A&M ceiling at receiver all of a sudden gets really high if if he's ready. They they really need one of their tight ends to pop. The, the, the two guys that, that you're going to be looking at a lot are Max Wright, who was a converted defensive end. He was actually a special defensive end recruit when he came in, but obviously they've they've recruited a lot of really good defensive ends. So he's, he's a fifth-year player. They need him to kind of develop as a pass catcher. And Blake Smith, uh, also actually from down the road from me in Southlake, they just need one of those guys to be a difference maker as a pass catcher. Because I don't think that they have... The, not even the depth of talent at receiver, but they don't have the production. They rely so much on that tight end position to uh, to create passing opportunities. So it's going to be, I think, interesting to see how quickly things come together. But I, I think that for me, no, I mean, honestly, after after going through this, I, I almost feel like your spot makes more sense, but I'm going to keep them where I had them. All right, so who did you have seventh then? I had Utah. I had Utah sixth. Yeah, they have the great tight end pairing and they have nothing at receiver that I feel is a known commodity. So right? and, they, and the tight ends are part of this. They do have two of their top three receivers are back. Britton Covey was their number one guy, but their second and third leading receivers guy. The position of receiver and how many receiving yards they had last year, their second and third guys are back. But their two leading receivers last year were the two tight ends that you're talking about that yeah. are both back. Yeah, the two returning receivers had 389 yards and 251 yards. So like they weren't difference makers, right? They were they were rotation players for them. I think that to reach their ceiling, Utah needs more than that. They need more than just short passing game sort of quick out type stuff. They need to I think also develop a little bit more of a stretch option. Now, the talent I'm sure is there cuz like you said, I mean, bring both those guys back, bring Solomon Ennis back too, who's the third guy. They have some talent there. They have some speed there. But uh, but I think for me, I just don't know past the tight ends whether there's a dynamic player or whether it's going to be a lot of like short to mid passing game. And that's kind of it. Unless that's enough. Like that, that's it might be. That's the thing. Like I 
was going over. They're going to be like, playing USC at some point, though. You know, they're going to no, be playing USC at some point, and and Jordan Addison's going to be racing away for touchdowns, and and they're going to be like, all right, here's an eight yard out, here's a six yard out, here's a you know. I but mean, if you can't stop it, like just a, just a reference point, 2017 Iowa beats Ohio State. Ohio State has more talent. Iowa wins. TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant, who were both future first round tight ends, combined for like 15 catches for 130 yards and four touchdowns in that game. And it wasn't dynamic, but Ohio State couldn't cover him. So I don't know if if Brant Keithy and Dalton Kincaid are that, but man, they're good. They are not Brock Bowers, Michael Mayer at Notre Dame good, but I think they're in the mix below that. Yeah. And there's yeah. two of them, and it's what yeah. they want to do. And Cam Rising's really good at it. And um, Devon Vele, who's a who's one of the receivers, like a little bit of a downfield threat, enough to maybe open stuff up at times. That I think they can be dynamic in their way through the tight end. Now it's not Jordan Addison, which is why we're not having a discussion about whether Utah should be in the top three here. But I think it's one of those things. Are they? Because we're gonna have a Brock Bowers discussion. If we didn't have tight ends lumped in here, Utah would be at the bottom of this list. Yeah. They might be last yeah. or they'd be ninth. But you bring yeah. in the two tight ends, which of course you have to because they're catching the right. ball. They're the leading yeah. receivers, pass catchers from last year. Are they do, do they play the way they play because they don't have receivers and they're like, well, I guess we have to throw to the tight ends? Or do they play the way they play because they want to play this way and then they go out and get tight ends and say, we want to do this? Like, do you do it from strength or do you do it from weakness? I think maybe they do it from strength. So if this they is do. their plan, this plan yeah. can work. And I think it's... Again, like, I think it's a pretty strong sixth. I don't know if you ask Kyle Whittingham or you guys, if you had a private moment, are you guys a little short in pass catchers? I, I don't know that he'd say yes. I think he'd be like, no, no, two tight I, ends and we have a couple guys who can get down the field. We're fine. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I definitely don't think that Kyle Whittingham would say that. I just also don't think that the comparison to Iowa is the most exciting comparison to make for a team that wants to make no. the college football playoff. No, I, I agree. If they, all right, I'll just say they have two Brock Bowers. How's that? Is that bad? <laughs> That's no, I mean, exciting. Hey, hey, the, the tight ends that Iowa had were great. I just would like them to have more than that. I would yeah. like them to be excited. No, I mean, I will say they they played a 48-45 game against Ohio State and their two okay. leading receivers were their tight ends who neither of them had more than 77 yards, right? So, like, maybe it just doesn't matter. Maybe they can run the ball well enough. Honestly, looking at these stats are kind of funny because how do you get to 45 points with the amount of yards that they have? That's, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, that, that's classic Utah stuff. So I, I do think, I do think, I, I mean, this is not part of the pass catchers. I'm going to be very curious to see whether they can create some dynamism in the return game because I think field position is such a big part of what they do. And losing Britton Covey, I think, is going to be pretty big from that perspective. So uh, I, I trust them to have it. I mean, again, I, I trust Utah of all teams to create some opportunities uh, in special teams. But I think that is going to be a legitimate factor for them when they play some of these better teams. So our bottom five, very, very similar. Both have Baylor 10, both have NC State 9, both have Clemson 8. And then seven and six, we both have Utah and Texas A&M. We just have them flip flop. So now we get our to our top five. Man, we do a lot of work. Once we get once we get later in this discussion, and we're, we have we have ten playoff contenders. Yeah, and we're going to talk about Notre Dame, and I want to talk about BYU next week. Unless you persuade me to yep. not talk, you're good with that, I, right? 
I, I'm good the, with that. The two independents will talk about Notre Dame and BYU and whether they should join the mix next week. If you've been wondering, like, where's Notre Dame? Where's Notre Dame? They're a top five in the preseason coaches poll. They're going to they'll be discussed. And then I think the last week before we make our picks will be sort of a wild card. We'll each pick one team that we haven't yet discussed and throw them out there. But right now we have 10 teams in this mix. I have Michigan five. Same. Or do you have five? Okay. And I think I think you could make a case for higher level of Michigan. They have everybody back. They have everybody back. And last year, their best receiver, Ronnie Bell, who was their leading receiver in 2019 and 2020, hurt his knee on a punt return in the opener and was lost for the year. And that bumped everybody up a spot. And I don't know that they were ready for that. I, I don't think they were. They had a lot of young guys. You know, they, they, some of those young guys made plays in the Ohio State game. And by the way, they were a playoff team. But they were a playoff team with a great defense and with a physical, dynamic run game. And they got by with the pass game. But now Ronnie Bell is back, looking good in camp, brave reviews from everybody. And all those other guys who were forced to play last year get to drop back a spot. But they have all this experience. There's some real dudes in there, a couple deep threats. And all of a sudden, I, I think this Michigan receiver room like kind of has a chance to take a jump cornelius johnson is 6'3 210 um like a real dude 40 catches for 627 last year like again sort of forced to be the number one guy roman wilson's pretty good andrell anthony's pretty good like you can fit guys in spots they have some inside guys some outside guys and ronnie bell is like a He's not the most dynamic receiver in the world. He's like a great leader of the room as a guy who can find a way to get open in the Big Ten. So I think this is a pretty darn solid, not in contention to be in the top two or three, but a pretty darn solid receiver room for Michigan that could be significantly better than it was a year ago. Yeah, and another name I'm going to throw into the mix is Darius Clemens, who's a freshman who just came in. He dominated the spring game just absolutely dominated the spring game and so i think that if you add darius clemens if you add ronnie bell i think that that gives them a level of dynamic play that they maybe didn't have last year obviously i think uh you know we were going to yesterday before some news dropped talk about quarterback competitions this is going to i think play a big part too right if jj mccarthy is able to be a little bit more involved in the passing game I think that gives them a chance to be even more dynamic, potentially just going a little bit more downfield or if Cade McNamara takes a step, by the way, that's definitely not out of the yep. question. But um, but, you know, I, I think that they just have a lot of experience coming back. Like this is a very good, solid receiver room. And I think that you look at the the list behind. I think that you're probably half a step behind that. And you look at the guys ahead. And I think that, you know, with the exception of the team that I have at four, I think that the top three are like, super dynamic rooms right so so i think that for me michigan is perfectly placed right here i think they have a chance to be pretty good and i think they have a lot of upside too that by the end of the year especially if this system kind of comes along i think they could be higher and by the way i i you know just generally speaking am not a massive fan of the way that michigan uses their quarterbacks and receivers so i think that in a in a more dynamic system these guys could be even higher yeah, Josh Gaddis, as the offensive coordinator, really ran it last year. He's not there anymore, but I think they also they were leaning into what they did best. I, I'll, I'll be curious. Harbaugh's yeah. always liked the tight ends, but I, I this this receiver room. He says that it has a chance. Harbaugh has said this preseason. It has a chance to be the, like the best receiver room they've had in his time there. Which I think you know. I, I that's, agree. That's I, not. I nothing. think that that's definitely a possibility. So I think again, I 
they they're no lower than five. We both have them five. Yeah. I think they're yeah. clearly above like the sixth and seventh teams. I think you could make a case for four, but again, yeah. I think higher than that you probably couldn't. Who do you have four? I think it's clearly Georgia. So they have That's what I also have. Yep. Yeah. Either the best or second best tight end in the country in Brock Bowers, like clear top two, clear gonna be probably a first round NFL draft pick. The issue is then you get past that. Like this, this is the funny thing, right? Uh, I, I had no idea, honestly, what to do with Georgia because they have, I mean, not the best player on the list, but like a guy who's on the short list of best pass catchers among this entire list. But then like behind that, they're leaning on some dude named Lad McConkey to be their second best receiver. Like they're, they lost Jermaine Burton to Alabama because he wasn't happy with his role. Uh, you know, Adonai Mitchell is, is a good player. He had more than 400 yards last year. And I think that their, their pass game is going to give them a lot of opportunities to be special. And, and by the way, I will mention too, they also have a chance to not just have Brock Bowers at tight end. Uh, Darnell Washington is a big time player at tight end as well. Arik Gilbert could be back. I, I don't know. Do we have any updates on on whether he might be back? He was somebody who was potentially going to play receiver. Right. No. No idea. But like, yeah. Again, would give juice to this group for sure if he. Is. Yeah. So, so I think that um, in some ways this is like the even better Utah tight end group, right? Like that's kind of what yeah. this is. And, um, and I, I think that they have two guys who are special uh, in, in obviously Bowers, who's like maybe the best in the country and Darnell Washington, who I think would be a great starter on basically any other team in college football. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I think that they have enough high end talent that it makes up for the mid end talent that I'm a little questioning, but uh, again, so for me, they, they end up at number four, but I think that you could definitely switch them with Michigan if you wanted to. I think if we just did a draft of the draft, the best individual pass catchers of these 10 teams, I think Bowers, Brock Bowers would be the third pick. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Behind that's right. Jackson Smith and Jigba and Jordan Addison. In I, th- some I think order, that's right. And Bowers is next. So I think, I mean, that's what we're talking about. He lifts that's this pretty group. special. I mean, yeah. that's that's pretty good. A.D. Mitchell, right? Big touchdown catch in the national championship game against Alabama. and One-on-one mm-hmm. coverage, mm-hmm. made a play. You know, Karis Jackson was around last year. It's weird. Like, last year, we were sort of waiting for George Pickens, George Pickens, George Pickens to come back. Never really happened. He's having, like, I think, a great camp with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I, I mean, he he made the biggest catch in Georgia history. We don't have to we don't have to pretend that George Pickens never showed up. Yeah, I, I mean, it, he he was never he never had like a ten catch yeah. game to like dominate. Right. He, he had moments, right? He had moments at the end because he was hurt the whole year, and all, we were waiting like all these other guys sort of around him. And Bowers, as a true freshman last year, developed in the absence and was there. He, Brock Bowers last year. Had 882 receiving yards. Nobody else on the team had more than 500. Like he almost doubled anybody else in individual receiving yards production as a true freshman tight end. It's remarkable. This guy, this guy is, is the next Travis Kelsey. Like this guy is a monster. It's, (laughs) there's so many things. I mean, like, again, Georgia won the title, but there's so many things about that 2021 team that feel dumb. Like, it's just like, oh, yeah, they just never really had receivers. They just never, you know, and they had them. Like, Jermaine Burton was awesome, but they're like, yeah, we don't need him. They had yeah. the number one pick in the draft. They, they were like, yeah, we don't need him as a pass rusher. Like, it was, there were so many galaxy brain things about that Georgia team, and they were just so good, and, and Alabama lost their receiver, so they won the national championship. But they were just, yeah. they're, I'm, I'm going to always look, look back at that team and be like, 
what was that? What on earth was that? Their, their starting quarterback starting quarterback was a walk-on. Their most yes. productive pass catcher was a true freshman. Yes. Their best actual receiver transferred to Alabama after the season. And yes. their sixth best defender was the number one pick in the NFL draft. So it's like, like okay, I don't know. And, and it's like, you look at them and it's like, oh, well, they kind of have these weaknesses. And it's like, they have the players to address all of these weaknesses and are just choosing not to. Is They're it possible? Like, it's crazy. I feel like you are setting yourself up for a story at CBSSports.com somewhere along the lines of why national champion Georgia actually underachieved in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> they, they should have been even more dominant because some of the pieces, like, how did they not fit better together? So anyway, they're pretty clearly fourth. It's so interesting. Jermaine Burton... If Jermaine Burton doesn't leave and doesn't go yeah. to Alabama, he changes this equation because who do you have third? Totally. Yeah, no, Alabama. So they're third because they got two big-time transfers, one of them from Georgia, and Georgia's fourth because they have a great tight end and otherwise some questions because the guy who should have been their leading receiver is at Alabama. That's Jermaine Burton. They also have Ty Harrell, who transferred from Louisville. Two of their three starters are going to be transfers, just like Jamison Williams was their best receiver last year as a transfer from Ohio State. And then Ja'Cory Brooks is like a real dude, and I think Saban seems happy with him. He might be ready to come on, but sort of not a lack of, like just a, their young receivers didn't pop as fast as like that previous generation of Bama receivers, Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell and Henry Ruggs and uh, Jerry Judy popped, which is why they've gone in the receiver portal each of the last two years. But two portal guys plus a pretty good young guy in Brooks, who's not all that young anymore. It, it, it's I think it's pretty clearly third, right? Pretty clearly third on this list. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's pretty I think it's pretty easily. I think that they have the most dynamic guys on the list. By the way, I mean, again, they've recruited the position insanely well. Like they are all these guys are basically top 100 players. And that's why it was so disappointing, I think, to me and to everyone when they didn't perform in the national championship game, they had a big opportunity, I think, to to make their imprint on that game because the talent was there, but they didn't perform. So I, I think that you expect a couple of them to take a step forward. I think Ja'Cory Brooks, of course, like you mentioned, is one of those players who you can kind of slot in as being a major contributor for them. And then I think you bring in two proven commodities in Jermaine Burton and Tyler Harrell. Uh, along with that depth of talent, along with bringing back a guy like Cameron Latu, who was a pretty big receiver for them as well at tight end. I, I mean, they just, they've just got a lot. They, they've got both talent and depth and upside. So I, I think that, that for me, they're a pretty clear number three because I don't think that any of the teams behind them have that combination. So we're really in agreement. There really are some tiers here. That uh, Bama's probably the clear number three. Four five is Georgia-Michigan. 6-7 is Utah, Texas A&M, and then those other schools are the bottom three, and these two schools are the top two. It's USC and Ohio State. Who do you have two? I have USC too. So I do I. I think, yeah, it, their, their transfer class is insane. Like, just, just looking at this group. Okay, obviously they were added Jordan Addison, who literally won the Bolitnikoff last year. That's a pretty good start, if we're being quite honest. Uh, but then, honestly, you look at the rest of this room, too. It's it's pretty crazy good. 
Taj Washington was a transfer from Memphis who came in last year. He was a he was a special player. They brought in Mario Williams uh, from Oklahoma as well. He's he's a big time player for them. He was a, I believe a freshman All American. Brendan Rice was also somebody last year for USC who contributed in a big way along with Gary Bryant. They've just got so many guys. And and again, I think in Jordan Addison and uh, Mario Williams, two clear clear Sunday players. And C.J. Williams is a receiver who a lot of people really wanted. He was committed to Notre Dame for a long time, but decided to stay home in California after Lincoln Riley came in. I mean, it's it's crazy. And then I think that you do look at some of these names like Malcolm Epps at tight end. I think he's going to be a contributor for them, though. I, I will say Lincoln Riley doesn't. He throws the tight end, but he likes to use them in versatile ways as well. So I don't know exactly how uh, Lincoln Riley is going to use this group. I don't think that there's a sure thing there, but I expect that they're going to be involved as well. Interesting battle between Ohio State and USC when it comes to legacy. USC has Brendan Rice, who is Jerry Rice's son. And Ohio State has Marvin Harrison Jr., who is Marvin Harrison's son. So that's two Hall of Famers who have kids who are going to play important roles for I probably the two best passing attacks in college football this season. Um, Addison at the top. Did you debate Ohio State versus USC or did it was it kind of clear to you that it was this order? Ohio State one, USC two. I mean, I pretty quickly put Ohio State one, USC two. But, you know, I mean, I, I do think that there's a very legitimate argument because I think that the thing that both of these rooms have in common is like they've got the guy. They've got the superstar, superhuman, all this sort of stuff guy. Obviously, Jackson, Jackson Smith and Jigba at Ohio State and Jordan Addison at USC. I, I think that those are like those are the two best receivers in the country. I, I don't think that there's really anybody else who's even going to be in that competition heading into the year. And, you know, I, I mean, Ohio State has a lot of talent. They recruited that room incredibly well. We got to see some of that, of course, in the Rose Bowl when uh, when those NFL receivers were gone. And so I, I don't think anybody should feel worried about what Ohio State has. But I do think that you could make the argument that USC has more proven commodities. right? I, I mean, because, like, look, you have Marvin Harrison Jr. go for six for 71 and three touchdowns uh, against Utah but you mentioned it too, like Utah kind of down to their second and third and, you know, walk on type cornerbacks. Like it, it's hard to know exactly what to take from that group. But also you look down this list, it's like, oh, yeah, number one recruit, number one recruit, number one recruit, number one recruit. Like, so I, I feel like with Ohio State, you're kind of betting on guys who have been in the program, uh, who have obviously learned in the program. But I mean. I didn't think much about putting USC number one when I did it. Most, I think another part of this too is because a lot of these guys haven't done it at USC. And that's going to, I think, be a question for me that I won't have for Ohio State. But I mean, I do think that you can make a very legitimate argument that USC is number one. And by the way, imagine if Drake London was coming back. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. Like then they would be like one of the great all time receiver. Rooms. Well, I mean, what if Garrett Wilson was coming back for Ohio State who left yeah, as a junior, yeah. too? So, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, these yeah, these are schools that Drake London, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave were all first round picks last year. Drake yeah. London was the first super pick. Garrett Wilson was the second. Chris Olave was the third. And, and now we're talking about those two rooms as still being the two best in this group and maybe the two best in the right. country because they lost all those guys and they're still OK. The thing about Ohio State is, yeah, they, Jackson Smith and Jigba, who I have dabbled with, could he have a 2,000-yard season? I, I don't think it's 1,000% impossible if they make the national championship game and play 15 games 
It's like, can he average like 130 yards per game? It's like, well, yeah, I think he could. Um, they just, like Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka and Julian Fleming didn't play much last year because they had Jackson Smith and Jigba and Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson ahead of them, right? So it's like, okay. But as you said, Julian Fleming is a third-year guy who's battled injuries. He was the number one receiver recruit in his class. Now he's a third-year guy. Emeka Buka was the number one receiver recruit in his class. He's now a second-year guy. And Marvin Harrison Jr. was like a top 100, top 120 national recruit. And then he got to campus and everybody was like, oh, that guy, look at that. He has like an NFL body right now. He looks ready. And you saw that in the Rose Bowl. So the expectation is Marvin Harrison Jr. will start outside. Jackson Smith and Jigbo start in the slot. And then Julian Fleming and Emeka Buka might share the other outside spot as, again, two guys who were both the number one receiver recruits in their country, in their class. So it's three five stars and a four star son of a Hall of Famer who are their top four receivers. So I think I didn't have a lot of hesitation about it because even, you know, Mario Williams as a freshman All-American last year, you know, if a Mecca Buka or Marvin Harrison Jr. had been able to get on the field, I don't know, maybe they could have done it too. But that's not to discredit what USC has done. But this is a little bit of an assembly line. It's a test of the assembly line at Ohio State because both Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson played as true freshmen. Chris Olave broke out in the Michigan game. Garrett Wilson was a primary part of the rotation as a true freshman. And now they're kind of gotten to the point where the true freshman receivers just don't play. Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to be a junior. He was awesome as a sophomore. He didn't play at all as a freshman. He didn't do anything. He had like one catch in the back of the end zone that people saw a nice toe tap. But you can't get on the field here. True freshman can't get on the field at receiver at Ohio State. So then are you ready right away? Are you 100% ready right away? Like, are you for, like, probably, but that's the whole deal of college football, Shahan. Well, you've never done it, so I have a little bit of hesitation. But I don't know that either of these rooms... The talent, the raw talent for both Ohio State and USC is ridiculous. I think Ohio State's probably is slightly higher. So I think we have the right order here. Yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting, right? This goes back to our existential battle between guys who have done it versus guys who were rated highly. And, uh, you know, at USC, you had a 600-yard receiver in Todd Washington. You had a 579-yard receiver with seven touchdowns in Gary Bryant. You have Jordan Addison, who just did the dang thing at Pitt and won the Bolitnikoff. And, and you've got Mario Williams, who I believe was a 600-yard receiver at Oklahoma. So, like, you've got guys who have played college football before on this yep. USC team. And and you really don't have that outside of Jackson Smith and Jigba at Ohio State. And, I mean, this is, I think, going to be fascinating because Alabama's kind of going through this right now, which is like, okay, so once that generation ages out, do you just assume that, oh, well, they'll just do it again? And... It hasn't really happened at Alabama. Yeah. Now, you still have maybe the best guy left from that generation of receivers at Ohio State and Jackson Smith and Jigba, who, like you said, might contend for 2,000 yards. But it's going to be interesting, right? I mean, I, I've been on the record saying I feel like last year, they get, uh, you, you know, the Heisen voters gave a lot of credit to CJ Stroud, so they didn't have to pick between receivers which I think was a mistake, but that's a whole other conversation. That's not going to be the case this year. I'm going to be curious with CJ Stroud, how he develops as well. Is he able to throw guys open? Is he able to help guys get comfortable as well? I think it's going to be a great test for him. But I mean, I look, all this aside, Ohio State and USC are clearly number one and number two on this list. And they have two of the most insane receiver rooms I've ever seen. Yeah, there's a lot of upside all around. There's a lot of upside all around. And there are guys that were on both teams. It's, it's really interesting because they have, they have the two best receivers in the country, as you said. And then they have a lot, a lot, a lot of talent behind them. So how those 
rooms pieced together. And the, and they also, by the way, are coached by probably the two best passing game minds in college football, right? Is that, are we disputing that with Lincoln yeah, Riley yeah, and Ryan no, Day? I think so. So it's like all, and they both have Heisman candidate quarterbacks and Caleb Williams and CJ Stroud. Wow, you're you're disrespecting Bill O'Brien like that? Oh my gosh! I just I know I didn't. He stayed at Bama. He's loyal to the Tide. So um, yeah. So I mean, it's like it's all in place for all of them. And I think if both those rooms aren't great, we'll be surprised, right? We are. Yeah. We are. You, yeah, maybe you want to see it, but if they're both not great, I think a lot of people will be surprised. All right. So like, not that exciting. Good discussion. Hope you learned a little bit from it. Kind of obvious. Ohio State, number one for both. USC, number two for both. That's the top tier. Bama, number three. That's the second tier. Georgia, four. Michigan, five for both of us. That's the third tier, Georgia, Michigan. Utah and Texas A&M for me. Texas A&M and Utah for Shahan. And then Clemson, eight. That's probably like another tier. And then NC State, nine. And Baylor, 10. They just have a longer way to come. So... Um, receivers matter, not necessarily the number one thing that you win with, but receivers certainly matter. And they're sure fun to talk about. We have two more weeks of this style of breakdown before we make our picks the week before the season starts. So the last two categories we're going to rank are coach and quarterback. And the teams we're going to talk about next week, it's going to be Notre Dame and BYU. And then the week after that will be wild card where Shahan and I used to get to bring up a team that hasn't been discussed yet. We're at 10. We don't usually allow ourselves to go over 12 at any point. So we're, we, we might have to get a little more uh, stingy with our yeses. But for now, it's Clemson, it's Ohio State, it's Alabama, it's Georgia, it's Baylor, it's Texas A&M, it's North Carolina State, it's Michigan, it's Utah, and it's USC. Those are the 10 playoff contenders we're talking about in the College Football Survivor Show. We certainly appreciate you guys being here. For Shahaj Haraja, I'm Douglas Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show.